Welcome to the Den of Dissidents. This is a show where we challenge the current culture and mainstream talking points of the day. What is the news telling us? What is the culture telling us? Where is our civilization headed? And by what standard do we judge these issues? Are you a dissident? Let's find out. What is up, people? So before we get into this episode, I just wanted to promote a course that I think you will find very valuable. So if you're one of these people that went through college, went through high school, and thought that maybe you didn't learn the truth about certain areas of history, American history, world history, economics, how the world really works and how it has worked in the past. If you felt like certain things were left out and you weren't taught the truth about certain areas, Liberty Classroom is the course for you. So let's, uh, let me just give you, um, a few samples or give you an idea of what this course is about. It was developed by Tom Woods, who is a, uh, author who wrote the book, the politically incorrect guide to, um, American history. And, you know, on the, um, webpage, it says defend libertarianism, advocate the free market and win any political or economic debate with clueless leftist. And also this course teaches you about logic, rhetoric, um, how to argue your ideas correctly. So let me scroll down a little bit just to give you an idea of what this uh, course teaches. So it talks about, um, you can learn about repeal of the minimum wage. So, you know, a lot of times we hear that the minimum wage is, is a great thing, but in this course, you'll learn the real effects of the minimum wage and you won't have to fear coming out second best in a debate. So you'll learn the flaws of the minimum wage and, and why the minimum wage uh, is problematic, especially for um, unskilled poor people. Um, also, you'll learn about the American Revolution, the real issue, why Americans fought the the American Revolution in defense of a principle our present federal government despises. You learn about the presidents, why the best presidents were the ones your teachers hated and the worst were the ones they loved. You see how that is flipped? Um, and, you know, oftentimes, you know, when I got out of school, there were things that I learned about history, American history, so forth, that, uh, that made me question, okay, how come I wasn't taught this in high school or college? And so as I've gotten older and started to um, do more research, especially with Liberty Classroom, I've come across some uh, some knowledge that was always there, but just wasn't um, exposed. Um, what else? The problems with liberal interpretations of the Constitution. Constitution. Virtually all school children learn that the federal government can do pretty much anything that advances the general welfare and that an elastic clause grants it a wide array of unspecified powers. This argument is indefensible and will arm you with the ammunition against it. Um, also, in short, you'll master logical persuasive arguments that support the fundamental libertarian precepts of individualism, individual rights, the rule of law, limited government, free markets, the virtue of production, the natural harmony of interests, and peace. Um, and lastly, here's a little um, sample of what's taught in the course, the American Revolution, a constitutional conflict, 
Austrian economics, the history of conservatism and libertarianism, introduction to logic, John Maynard Keynes, um, U.S. constitutional history. He learned about Western civilization to 1500, uh, Western civilization since 1500, how freedom settled the West, history of economic thought and more. Um, as far as the formats that the class comes in, you get audio lectures, you get video lectures. Um, you know, if you're in your, in your car driving, you can listen to it um, in your car and at home you can watch it. Uh, there's also additional reading. So they provide um, a lot of sources and books for you to check out. Um, it, it provides recommended reading lists, which takes out the guesswork um, of your reading choices when you want to explore topics in more de depth. And uh, what else? Help Defending Liberty. Um, it also uh, says, what if you're concerned and don't know how to answer a socialist argument you've never heard before? Then ask our faculty directly so you can get in contact with the faculty as well. As far as the, the professors that uh, teach in this course, like I said, Tom Woods, who is a um, author, has written several books, um, is one of the professors. Uh, Kevin Gutzman, who also has written uh, books on, I think it was, um, was it Hamilton? Um, who else is um, here? Uh, Robert Murphy. Um, I'm sorry. Economist Robert Murphy, James Madison biographer Kevin Gutzman, um, and Hillsdale, Hillside College. Sorry, not to confuse that with Hillsdale, Hillside College historian Brad Berzer. Um, so these are some of the professors that teach Liberty Classroom. When you enroll in Liberty Classroom, you get the education and have the information and cogent arguments at your fingertips to articulate your libertarian perspective and win your political and economic debate. So, you know, regardless of where you stand on the um, political spectrum, um, I think this is good for everybody because you're getting a perspective that you probably weren't taught in school. Um, so learn some real history. Get some truth. You can click the link in the video below. I will be sure to post it. So on that note, let's get into the episode. Peace. Welcome back to the welcome back to the Den of Dissidents. Today I have special guest Gabriel Shipton, who is a filmmaker and producer of the new film Ithaca. He's also the brother of Julian Assange. And I also have John Shipton, who is the father of Julian Assange. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate Pleasure it. So, thank you. Thank you for coming on. Um, so I want to just jump into it. Um, some people in the audience may not know too much about the Julian Assange case. So I kind of want to start from the beginning and, and uh, get some detailed information about uh, what's going on with the case. So um, what was Julian Assange like growing up? What Was he passionate? about wanting to get into world affairs or politics? Uh, his mom says that he, he uh, was nicknamed Wizard because uh, of his uh, precocious uh, intelligence and curiosity. Um, you know, he was, had a, 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 what do you call it, an undying curiosity about all things, particularly mathematics and physics and computers. Okay. And 
What what inspired him to start WikiLeaks? Uh, well, he, he had came upon this understanding, which as follows: of three uh, fundamental parts. First was Tor, which is anonymizer over the internet, it means that you could uh, send messages or details or leaks without your identity being known. The second one is uh, back in 2006, there were about 68 million uh, websites in the world. Uh, and at any given time, you could access documents that were held on those websites. And thirdly, in so doing, you could form groups or forums, which are really common now, um, to uh, provide analysis and contribute information and build up a floor of knowledge. So that was a, a profound insight. Also, uh, in journalism, uh, to continue to hold the documentary evidence available for people to continue their research. Uh, for example, in the, uh, in the United Kingdom, they had the Chilcot, Chilcot inquiry into the Iraq war. And if you combine the Chilcot inquiry, it's a, a royal commission of the uh, United Kingdom Parliament, if you combine that inquiry with the uh, 400,000 uh, files or Iraq war logs, then you can have a, a profound understanding of how that war, that illegal war was run, its results and the tragedies which ensued. One particular is that uh, uh, Iraq war body count was able to uh, unearth 15,000 civilian deaths that had been up until that stage unaccounted for and denied. All right. Um, originally, when Julian started this organization, um, did he ever discuss the some of these controversial leaks that he was getting or these these um, controversial um, pieces of information that he was getting with you as he was getting them? No, no. Uh, um, uh, our conversations were mostly Julian uh, outlining his idea and its capacity. Uh, I didn't uh, contribute anything at all except to listen. Okay. And starting out when he um, started the organization, do you think that he knew that there was going to be some backlash or did, did he expect any backlash? Well, yes, of course, he expected. But uh, like all of us, when in those days, we, we believed, uh, sincerely believed, that the institutions of state uh, in, in the United Kingdom, Sweden, and the United States, the particular institutions of state, were not cynical. That is, that they, in particular, the United States, of course, would adhere to the First Amendment and would adhere to the uh, Bill of Rights, the Ten Amendments to the Constitution of the United States. Okay. There's an interesting interview uh, around 2011, uh, around the time when Julian uh, released the, the, the information that he's been prosecuted uh, for at the moment. And in that interview, 
uh, Julian says that they expect around eight years of, uh, you know, regulatory attacks and different attacks uh, against WikiLeaks uh, for publishing um, this information. Uh, so, so there was, uh, I think there was a, uh, you know, back then there was an understanding that this was going to really uh, have a, a big effect on the world and, and that um, the corruption, uh, the crimes that, that were exposed, those people were going to come after WikiLeaks and Julian uh, with all of their, with all of their resources and might uh, at that time. So, yeah, I think even, even when you go back, back and look back then that, that um, they knew that, that this was going to have a, a big effect. Right. So originally when I first heard of Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, it was through this collateral murder video. And um, some people aren't familiar. A lot of people are. So this is what, in my opinion, kind of put it on, put WikiLeaks on the map for me. And um, this is the video in which, um, it shows a military U.S. military helicopter gunning down journalists and civilians. And then there was a rescue truck that came to pick up the uh, civilians and the journalists and they gunned that down, too. Um, what is what was the reasoning behind the U.S. military killing these people or what was there any type of justification or anything like that? As far as I'm concerned, there's there's three indisputable war crimes. The first, the gunning down of the original 11. The second was that uh, two men uh, driving their children to school stopped to pick up a wounded man and uh, loading him into the, into the van. Uh, they were murdered, the children badly wounded. And the third was a few minutes later, uh, um, a man walking into a building, uh, they fired a hellfire rocket after him and another seven people were killed. So two indisputable war crimes, the last two that I described. And the first, the 11, uh, there is some dispute about that because uh, uh, it was suspected that one or other of them may have been a terrorist, suspected and not demonstrated. Okay. So you would, that would be decided in a court of law. However, none of the people are involved, the, the crazy horse, that's the dispatcher from the United States Army, or the helicopter pilots, none of them have been arraigned, indicted, or uh, brought before a court, whereas Chelsea Manning was brought before a court and received 35 years jail for releasing that, uh, released after seven years, and Julian Assange has been uh, in asylum for seven and a half years and now four years in Belmarsh Maximum Security Prison. So when um, Julian Assange exposed what was going on during the Iraq war, I mean, was anybody held accountable during that time, like during the war or even after the war? Has anybody held accountable for war crimes? No. Uh, the only uh, accounting that happened was that the uh, entire apparatus of the Crown Prosecuting Service, the Swedish Prosecuting Authority, the CIA, the FBI, and the uh, National Security Section of the Department of Justice turned 
their full might against Julian Assange. And uh, that is the only accounting that's been done, a demonstration of an unwillingness or a willingness, actually, to uh, commit war crimes, uh, crimes against humanity, mass murders. They say 900,000 people were killed in the destruction of Iraq. That, That's that was it. Yeah, that was my oh, next. No, I was going to say that was my next question, actually. Is this when the persecution of Julian started to begin after the exposure of the Iraq war? It began, it began in place in 2010 in an FBI telegram to the Swedish prosecuting authority, which uh, caused the Swedish prosecuting authority, we assume, before, because of the timing, to issue a red notice uh, for Julian's arrest. Now, what had happened was that the uh, Swedish prosecuting authority under Marianne Nye had said to Julian's lawyer, it's you're fine to leave because Julian had an appointment in London. You're fine to leave. It's no problem. Immediately, Julian left. They issued a, uh, a EAW, uh, European Arrest Warrant, and then uh, a day later uh, issued a red notice on that, on that warrant. Now, a red notice has only ever been issued for terrorists or or mass murderers or, or you know, people of that nature. Uh, you can see that the involvement uh, of, uh, of the Swedish prosecuting authority in, in conspiracy or conspiring rather with these, the Crown Prosecuting Service and the FBI is immediate. Wow. So are these prosecutors acting uh, unlawfully with what they're um, trying to or how they're handling this case? The, the, the Professor Nils Melzer, the rapporteur, United Nations rapporteur on torture and uh, unusual punishment, has written a book called The Trial of Julian Assange based upon his report, which outlines the irregularities and procedural malfeasance and uh, uh, lack of due process in the treatment of Julian Assange by the Swedish prosecuting authority. Now, there's a whole book on it. And, uh, uh, and also, we have FOIs from the Swedish prosecuting authority and the Crown Prosecuting Service, which demonstrate conspiring between them in order to keep Julian in the embassy for seven and a half years while the spokesperson for the parliament, for the United Kingdom government in parliament was saying that Julian can leave any time he wants. You know, it's like being in a lifeboat, to make a metaphor, Julian being in a lifeboat and them suggesting that they can hop out into shark, that he can hop out into shark if infested waters. Wow, that's crazy. So I would imagine that's grounds for a lawsuit against against them. If, you know, in the Dan Ellsberg case with the Pentagon Papers, 
taint, that is the breaking in of the burglars, they call the plumbers, into uh, the psychiatrist's office, Dan Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office, breaking into there, was taint enough to have the court dismiss the case in entirety. In Julian's case, there are three fundamental taints to the case. The first I've just described, the conspiring between the, the two authorities. The second is the CIA spying on Julian Assange, which Gabriel can go into in detail. And the third is the bringing of the first indictment in uh, Iceland under these circumstances. Nine FBI officers got derogatory permission to travel to Iceland to interview uh, a man named Thor Darson. That Thor Darson was a convicted paedophile and a convicted fraudster. The FBI promised him immunity from prosecution and if he would give evidence that Julian uh, was intending intending to uh, 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 what do you call it hack into a computer system in Iceland? Okay, so that is a, this is the circumstance of taint that an Icelandic person given immunity from prosecution in Iceland by the FBI to give false evidence against Julian Assange for a crime committed, for an alleged crime committed in Iceland and brought to a court in the United Kingdom for Julian to be extradited to the United States. It's just not possible. However, the judge did accept it as a foundation for the first. So there's three areas of taint. Gabrielle is very good on the, uh, on the CIA involvement. Seems to have disappeared. I can't see it. Yeah, I don't know what happened. I was going to ask you, I'm sorry, before I got cut off. Yes. Um, as yes. far as the Iraq war and what was being exposed to WikiLeaks, there was um, reports of deaths in Iraq that were being misrepresented. Um, John Slobata, who was the co-founder co of Iraq, Iraq Body Count, said that there was like over 15,000 uh, civilian deaths. Um, what was the, the toll, the death toll that was being misrepresented? that um, WikiLeaks exposed? Well, there, there were so 15,000 deaths unaccounted for in the United States' figures. Uh, the United States, sorry, not the United States, the Department of Defense of the United States said that we don't do body counts. However, uh, in the, in the, uh, uh, Iraq war logs, it revealed 15,000. Up until that stage, uh, Lancet had estimated uh, that there were 600,000 deaths um, and uh, Iraq war body count had made a similar estimate. They, all of those deaths uh, uh, death notices in in uh, newspapers or in other outlets. The the Australian uh, scientist uh, Gideon Polya, who works uh, his figures on excess deaths, 
estimates that there were 900,000 people killed in, in the, in the uh, second Gulf War. You said 900,000? Yes, he estimates that. On, uh, calculates on excess death patterns. Okay. Which is the no normal means, you know, that's how, uh, for example, the, the calculations on deaths from COVID are done, uh, are done uh, across an entire society. It is a scientific, scientific method and it's verifiable. Wow. Okay. Um, now, some people question the whistleblowers or how WikiLeaks got its information. And, you know, in the media sometimes, especially I've heard with uh, MSNBC and Rachel Maddow saying that Julian has been, he got this information from Russians and um, the Russian government, and he's putting out propaganda. Um, to be clear, he was getting this information from leakers that were working within the government, the different governments. The it's alleged okay. that Chelsea Manning is the source of all of the information, the leaks, the Guantanamo Bay files, the rules of engagement, the Iraq War files, and the Afghan War logs, in its and the collateral murder video that Chelsea Manning released had taken those leaks, copied them down, and had approached the Washington Post and the New York Times, both of which refused interest. And WikiLeaks being a publisher of last resort, Chelsea then went to uh, WikiLeaks and uh, all of the rest is history. So that's the entirety. The other thing that's have to be kept in mind that because of her position, and then Bradley Manning's position in the United States Army as an intelligence analyst, he was had access to the entirety of SIPANET. The SIPANET is classified information. Top secret information is not on SIPANET. None of the information that uh, Chelsea Manning released uh, uh, to Julian Assange, which was subsequently published by WikiLeaks and Der Spiegel from Germany, Le Monde from France, The Guardian from the United Kingdom, El Pay from Spain, and finally the New York Times of New York. All of that they published simultaneously with Julian, none of them have been arraigned. In fact, in November last year, those five newspapers got together, those five partner newspapers got together and published a letter to uh, the Department of Justice, to the Attorney General, Mary Garland, stating that they wanted the charges dropped against the charges against Julian Assange dropped. Now that's the facts. Okay. Because, um, you know, the media was trying to paint this as if it was some uh, Russian disinfo campaign. And um, 
you know, this was, these were like a bunch of leaks that were being made up, basically trying to discredit the whole situation. Um, eventually, uh, Julian was then charged with some type of, there was an assault case or something like that. Um, how did that come about? So, the Swedish matter <coughs> were allegations. And the allegations uh, depend the Swedish prosecuting authority to further the allegations depends upon an interview. Julian gave one interview and uh, the chief prosecutor of Stockholm dismissed saying that there was no charges to answer. However, with some prosecutorial shopping, shopping for a prosecutor willing to uh, take up this matter, uh, um, a woman by the name of Marianne Nye from the Gothenburg uh, uh, prosecutorial district took up the matter and then pursued it for nine years. Eventually, uh, the the matter expired on time. They never interviewed Julian in the embassy until the last minute, and that only came about because Julian's lawyers in Sweden had taken the matter to the federal court insisting that the prosecutor further the matter by an interview and that was only done when when the federal court of, of Sweden ordered the, the the Swedish prosecuting authority to further the case the whole matter is a scandal the entirety of it is described in the book the trial of Julian Assange by uh, Professor Nils Melzer. It's a fabulous read, easy to read, and contains all the facts. I have to yes, check that it, out. It was, the, it was the longest running, it was the longest running preliminary investigation in uh, in Swedish history. It was open and closed four times, and it was finally let go, uh, finally let go only after Julian uh, was in a British prison. Uh, so it was kept in play that whole period, those, that whole period through his uh, asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy. And finally, when he was uh, in the hands of the British authorities, uh, that is when the Swedish prosecutor came out and said, oh, we don't have enough evidence uh, to continue with this investigation. And they ended up letting it go at that point. Uh, so uh, it's quite obvious that it was uh, this investigation was used to keep, as John said earlier, was used to keep Julian inside the Ecuadorian embassy. Um, there are emails uh, that John referred to that were released under Freedom of Information Act between the Swedish prosecutor and the UK Crown Prosecuting Service, uh, where the Swedish prosecutor is saying to the UK, the UK prosecutor, you know, that they want to let this go, that that uh, that they can't progress this case any further, this investigation any further. And the UK prosecutor responds saying, uh, don't get cold feet. This is about more than a simple extradition. So that one email that that, that is a primary source document from the UK Crown Prosecuting Service shows exactly the motives uh, behind this uh, investigation that was used to keep Julian in the embassy. 
uh, he was never charged. Wow. So they were pretty much determined to get him get him on something. Um, when did he uh, go to the Ecuadorian embassy? Well, uh, yes, yeah, seven. He was in there for seven and a half years, and he was taken out. He was removed from the uh, Ecuadorian embassy uh, in 2019. So it would have been around 2012, 2011 uh, that he took refuge there, uh, and the Ecuadorians uh, they gave gave Julian political asylum. Uh, because they, the Ecuadorians saw uh, that uh, it was the risk of Julian being extradited to the US. Um, that was the main risk, and that was why Ecuador extended the political asylum uh, to Julian. Okay. And while he was at the embassy, I've read that um, the CIA was spying on him and spying on his uh, his meetings with his lawyers. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So in 2017, after after WikiLeaks uh, released uh, Vault Seven, uh, which was a analysis of uh, CIA hacking tools, um, you know these hacking tools that the CIA could use to turn your television into a microphone uh, that would listen into conversations in your home, uh, you turn your phone into a recording device. Uh, the CIA had all these tools that they were using to spy on uh, not just people overseas, but also Americans. And it was after that release that uh, Mike Pompeo and his first speech uh, as CIA director uh, signaled his intent to really uh, use the full force of the CIA uh, to go after WikiLeaks and Julian. And that's when we saw this uh, ramping up of these clandestine operations against uh, WikiLeaks. And, and uh, in the film in Ithaca, we have the footage from the cameras that were placed inside the embassy. You know, all the cameras in the embassy were updated uh, during this period to high definition cameras. Uh, there were microphones placed uh, in every room in the embassy. Uh, even in the ladies' bathroom, there were microphones placed. And uh, it was the security company that were meant to be protecting Julian uh, inside the embassy where, where it had actually been co-opted by uh, the CIA. And their CEO uh, would fly this uh, data every 15 days. So over this period of a, few, of a couple of years, uh, this uh, Morales, this, uh, this CEO of UC Global, did over 100 flights. To the United States carrying this information, uh, these privileged uh, recordings of Julian's privileged meetings with his lawyers, uh, meetings with his psychologists, uh, back to the USA where they would hand them over uh, to the CIA. And this was all confirmed by uh, employees of the, of, the, of the company who leaked all this information uh, to a Spanish court who is currently doing uh, an investigation but also by three Washington DC journalists uh, who did an in-depth investigation into this after they found out about this Spanish, uh, Spanish court investigation. These three journalists in Washington DC uh, did this year-long investigation and wrote a 6,000 word piece uh, citing 30 former and current intelligence community officials that 
confirmed that there were plots inside the CIA, plots to kidnap Julian from the embassy. And these plots made it as high as the Trump White House. And this report goes on to say that there were conversations between uh, Pompeo and the Department of Justice at the time that the Department of Justice said, well, what are you going to do if you kidnap him from the embassy? What are you going to do with him? You know, you, <laughs> we don't have any charges. And so they said, they said to Pompeo, let give us a bit of time and we'll uh, get some charges in place and then you can get him out of the embassy. So you can see uh, from this reporting that uh, you know, what has happened is a, is a judicial kidnapping in a sense. Uh, these charges were put in place and uh, Julian was taken from the embassy by British police. The Ecuadorians allowed British police inside the embassy. Uh, Pompeo in his recent memoir uh, dedicated a section to these events, you know, saying that he successfully lobbied the Ecuadorians to let this happen, to allow them to come into the embassy, uh, that he was behind pushing uh, for this extradition. So you can look at it uh, from these statements and from this reporting and really pinpoint that this is a very, very politically motivated uh, prosecution of Julian Assange. Wow. So the the authorities at the um, or the security company at the embassy where they, they were being paid off by the CIA or incentivized. Yeah, well, uh, there's there's an email, there's a, a now infamous email from Morales to his his colleagues saying we're now working for the dark side, and so I mean even wow. he understood even even uh, he understood that. Um, you know, what they were getting up to was very nefarious, uh, you know, was, uh, you know, what do you associate with the dark side, right? It's like Darth Vader, uh, you know, Darth Vader, you know, pulling the strings uh, behind this um, attack on a, on a publisher. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. So all this time he's at the embassy and he's going through all these different situations and he hasn't been charged. That's correct. Yeah. So the charges only were revealed after he was taken uh, from the embassy. So it was it was only upon uh, in 2019 when he was taken on taken from the embassy that this unprecedented espionage act prosecution was revealed to the public. And before that, uh, that before that he had not charged. He's, he's never been charged with any crime. Okay. Now I um I was watching some um footage on on the case and there was a journalist that said that Obama had commuted the sentence of Chelsea Manning and when the Trump administration got in that's when Julian was being pursued is that correct by the US government Yeah so under the Obama administration they had what uh, there was a they looked into charging Julian and they, you know, did quite a bit of work, uh, you know, on on trying to find ways that they could uh, go after WikiLeaks. But they they came back to this uh, new what they called the New York Times problem, uh, in that if you charge Julian Assange and WikiLeaks for publishing this information, uh, then you would have to charge uh, the New York Times uh, similarly because it was the same act that they both performed. They both published uh, these classified documents. Uh, uh, to the public, and 
you know, there was no way to differentiate between the two. But it was, yes, as I said, during the Trump administration, during this, uh, you know, overzealous pursuit of Julian that was, um, you know, kicked off by uh, Mike Pompeo in this situation, uh, that, that this really sort of progressed. And, and you know, we saw, uh, I guess, you know, under the Trump administration that there were a willingness to go after journalists using um, using the DOJ. And so uh, this New York Times problem uh, became the New York Times solution uh, for, for, for the Trump administration. And they literally um, devised plans or thought out plans of how to kidnap and assassinate him? Yes. Yeah, so in the leaked material from UC Global, the security firm, uh, there are emails that talk about uh, poisoning Julian uh, in the embassy, talk about uh, emails that refer to uh, taking his baby's diaper to do a DNA test or to, to, to see if it was Julian's child or not. Uh, so it's, it's um, you know, it, it is stuff, you know, yeah, like, like I said, they're working for the dark side, you know, and, mm. and um, it was really, uh, you know, incredibly unbelievable uh, things that should have this, uh, should have this case totally thrown out. Right. I'm just curious as to why the Trump administration, well, looking back during the election, Wiki, it seems WikiLeaks was exposing a lot of um, a lot of information, negative information about the Clinton campaign and Hillary Clinton. And as a result, the Trump administration kind of benefited from those leaks. I remember a lot of, of uh, a lot of those leaks being circulated and um, it was making Hillary look bad. And Trump, I think, um, talked about some of those leaks. Why would the Trump administration want to go after Julian when they benefited from some of the information that Julian was or that WikiLeaks was putting out? Well, uh, you know, Julian did what journalists should be doing everywhere, you know, publish without fear or favor. You know, when it was damaging information about the Bush-led war in Iraq and Afghanistan, he published it. It was in the public interest when it was information about corruption in uh, the Democratic National Committee, about how uh, Hillary Clinton and the DNC had conspired to uh, stop Bernie Sanders from receiving the, the nomination. He published it when it was about the CIA's use of uh, hacking tools against the American public. He published it. You know, this is what journalists should be doing. They should be finding information uh, that is in the public public interest and publishing it, um, and not being afraid of, uh, you know, whether they ex uh, upset one side of politics uh, or another or one uh, institution of government like the CIA. Right. And so the U.S. government is trying to charge him with the um, the Espionage Act. Is that correct? Yeah, so this is a novel. It's a no. It's a new use uh, of the Espionage Act under under Obama. The es the use of the Espionage Act was really ramped up to go after whistleblowers. Uh, you know, previously Daniel Ellsberg had been charged under the Espionage Act, but that was fifty years ago. Uh, so more recently, under the Obama administration, uh, you had people like uh, Nick Drake, uh, NSA whistleblower. John Kiriakou, who blew the whistle on 
uh, black side torture in the CIA. Uh, these were whistleblowers who had been prosecuted under the Espionage Act. Most recently, Daniel Hale, who uh, exposed that uh, 90% of drone uh, fatalities were civilians. He was prosecuted under the Espionage Act. But this is the first time it's ever been used uh, on a publisher, uh, somebody who published the information. So that that's a really new use case and a dangerous, uh, very dangerous uh, use of it. So dangerous that you have, you know, every press freedom organization in the US calling on the Merrick Garland Department of Justice to drop this. You know, so dangerous that you have the New York Times publisher writing letters to the DOJ calling on them to drop this. And even now you have Congress people. So there's a group within Congress, uh, one, uh, one bipartisan effort at the end of last year between uh, Congressman Thomas Massey from Kentucky and Ro Cunner, uh, Congressman Ro Cunner from uh, California. Uh, they put forward an Espionage Act reform bill because they, they can really see how dangerous this, dangerous this is uh, to the basic pillars of, of democracy. And now you have a group within the Democratic Congress. Uh, it's made up of four people and there was some reporting on it actually that came out yesterday. And that is, there's a Dear Colleagues letter led by Rashida Tlaib uh, and it has sign-ons by Cory Bush, by Ilhan Omar have signed on, uh, Jamal Bowman has signed on. Uh, 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 Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez has said she will sign on to the letter before it is closed. And so now you're seeing uh, this recognition uh, within Congress, uh, you know, how dangerous uh, this is. And there's there's been statements uh, by people like uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. Uh, he put out a tweet that says, uh, there is no America without a free press. And there is no free press without a free Julian Assange. Wow. So regarding the Espionage Act, I mean, it sounds like anybody can be charged with that for putting out some negative information that exposes crimes of the government. I mean, yeah, it's not I just guess. it's not just publishing the information. So actually possessing the information uh, and reading the information uh, that's how far this goes. That's how far this prosecution uh, goes. If you read through the indictment, you know you 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 see that this actually affects every single newsroom in America, or every anyone who holds uh, classified information, uh, that they they can potentially face an espionage act uh, prosecution. Uh, there's another charge in the indictment that uh, criminalizes journal journalistic activity. So the act of encouraging a source to hide their identity uh, digitally it becomes a criminal offence. Uh, encouraging a source to uh, provide information becomes a criminal offence. So this is like, uh, you know, the basics of journalism uh, are being criminalised with this indictment. Yeah. I, I don't get, you know, what, what do they expect? I mean, do, do they expect the people to rely on the government to report its own crimes? <laughs> Obviously not. Um, so fast forward to now. So Julian is currently, he's in prison at, is, is it Belmarsh? Is that the name of the facility? 
Yes, Belmarsh Prison. Belmarsh Maximum Security Prison, just okay. outside of London. Okay, and how long has he been there now? Four years. Okay, and what are the conditions um, that that he's undergoing over there? Like, what what is he going through being there? Oh, what is experience? Principally, uh, 23 hours a day in the cell, um, two visits a week from family, a 10-minute phone call to me, and uh, a, a little longer to um, his lawyers. Uh, Julian hasn't been allowed to um, attend his own court cases since a good while now, since, 19, since uh, 2021. So... In sum, Julian is held incommunicado. He's not allowed to make public statements and he gets limited contact with his family only. Um, next week, you listeners may be uh, surprised to hear this, but next week, uh, the High Commissioner of the Australian Government to the, the Court of St. James, the United Kingdom government. It's equivalent to the ambassador or higher post than the ambassador actually. Um, we'll visit Julian in jail. So this is really significant upgrading of the government of Australia's concern for citizen Assange. Okay. So he's locked in a cell for 23 hours a day, like in solitude? Uh, well, it, it, solitude is a, a, another hour or so, but uh, it amounts to uh, solitude. Um, he is in what they call in association. So uh, previously, uh, for about seven months, he was in uh, the health wing. Now, the health wing is called by the prisoners the hell wing. Okay. Um, and that is isolation. Um, the people there are usually dying or mad um, and need to be cared for differently. However, a prisoner like Julian Assange needs to be in association because he's not in the circumstances that I just described. The prisoners, not the rights watch, not all of the NGOs that are concerned, the prisoners took up a petition to have Julian removed from the health wing, the hell wing, into association. And that failed. They, they petitioned again and that failed. They petitioned a third time, and that was a success. As a consequence of that, Julian was moved into what is called an association in the over 50s wing. Okay. And what are his um, his health conditions? Or what is his experiences? Has he talked to you about the experiences that he's having and, and what kind of experiences is he having um, being there? Oh, I don't really ask about that because it just upsets me, you know. Yeah. I mean, bad enough to 
you know, like feed my imagination on bad things. It's right. bad enough as it is. And the report of the United Nations Rapporteur on Torture, that Julian was being tortured. This report came about after the after Nils Melzer, the rapporteur, visited Julian in Belmarsh Prison with two doctors who have expertise in the the manifestations in the mind and the body from uh, from psychological torture. And Nils Melzer's 26-page report was submitted to the United Nations General Assembly and accepted. A copy was sent to the United Kingdom's uh, Secretary of State, and that was received uh, disdain. That is, that the very body which the, the United Kingdom is one of the principal authors of, the United Nations wrote a report to the United Kingdom and they treated it with disdain. Similarly, the Swedish prosecuting authority, the Swedish government, received the same report uh, and they replied to it. And subsequently, Nils Melzer, the rapporteur, replied uh, to the Swedish government with 50 more irregularities, malfeasances, and failures of due process. It started with five, and then in the second letter had 50. Um, that's the circumstances of, of Julian's uh, uh, arraignment in the prison. Uh, finally, Professor uh, Colum, what's his name? Professor Coleman, uh, uh, neuropsychiatrist giving evidence in the hearing uh, uh, <clears throat> in February 2020 uh, revealed that he estimated that Julian would form into fall into a profound de depression and suicide if he was uh, sent to the United States. Uh, Julian has a history, of course. That's everybody knows that now of uh, of depressions um, and was when taken into the uh, into the Belmarsh prison in 2019. Uh, he was in a state of severe depression. Uh, Gabriel and I visited Julian at that time with uh, a journalist by the name of uh, uh, John Pilger. Gabrielle can continue the story from there. That's yeah, when we started to come up with the idea for Ithaca was that visit with John Pilger. And as, it, as John was saying, it was when Julian was being kept in that horrible part of the prison um, and left, left, the, left that day thinking that you know, we might not see Julian again. He, he, I'd never seen him like that before. And uh, yeah, it was very, um, it was a very tough day, but it sort of moved moved us to, to, to sort of act in a way that uh, I started to think about how I could use my skills as a film producer to tell a different side to this story, a side to the story that 
uh, we understood as Julian's uh, family, this side that uh, we're telling you about today that wasn't represented in the media, uh, that, that normal people didn't uh, weren't educated about or, or didn't know about. And so that's when we started uh, to really look at how, how we could make a documentary uh, a documentary film um, about about this uh, subject. And at the time, John uh, was traveling around the UK and, and Europe, uh, speaking to politicians, speaking to media, uh, advocating for Julian with unions and activists. And so it seemed like the perfect thread to follow, uh, to, to start following John with a camera and, and uh, tell uh, and, and sort of present his journey as a, as a father fighting for his son, something that audiences, uh, any audience could connect with, any parent, uh, any parent could connect with uh, 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 this story. And, that, and that's uh, the sort of beginnings of how we started on, on uh, the production of Ithaca. And we filmed for the following, we filmed for uh, around two years after that, after that first day. And and uh, now we're on this 59, uh, 59 event tour of the US, bringing the movie to audiences uh, all around the United States. We've just had two sold out screenings in Austin. Uh, we are off to Indianapolis tomorrow and Chicago after that. Um, and if anybody wants to see or get involved, they can go to Ithaca.movie Ithaca uh, to find out where we will be next up. Um, we're, we're, we're going to most every place around the USA. Um, so meeting people and, and talking to them about the case as well as um, showing, showing the film, which has been getting a really good response right. uh, around America. Yeah, I wanted to um, get to that. So as, regarding the film, you said that you want to expose the side that the media has left out. Um, in the film, it touches on the case. I'm assuming it goes into the background of the whole case and the whole story. Correct. Well, it it, um, it does a little bit, but really, this is a, it's it's a film about the fight to free Julian Assange, okay. uh, and the people uh, at the center of that fight are, are Julian's family fighting to free, you know, their son or John's son or my brother. Or, or uh, the father, or you know, in Stella's case, her husband and the father of her children. So really, it's a very intimate uh, look at this, uh, you know, at this family who is uh, fighting to save their loved one's life, but is also at the centre of this global fight uh, for you know everybody's uh, democratic rights, uh, and that is now a worldwide, uh, a worldwide phenomena. Uh, with all these groups, all these parliamentary groups all over the world, in every Western democracy, there is a bipartisan uh, free Julian Assange group. Uh, you know, like I was saying earlier, there's the congressional group that's forming. Uh, and, and these are people who all see what's at stake in the fight to free Julian. But the film really looks at uh, the personal side and, and, a, and a sort of humanistic telling uh, of the story, very emotional uh, using sort of more emotional storytelling to right. open people's hearts and then open their minds. Right. What do you think the media is leaving out about Julian Julian Assange's story? Well, principally. Uh, sorry, go on, Gabriel. Sorry. No, I mean, I think there's a real lack of 
you know, reporting on, on, on what is actually happening. You know, uh, the, a lot of the media will uh, just report on what the prosecutors tell them about the case. They won't do any investigation into, uh, you know, what is actually going on. For instance, those, those, that um, story about the CIA that I was telling you about, uh, you know, didn't didn't get any reporting in, say, the New York Times or the Washington Post. It was only reported in uh, in Yahoo News. So, you know, this is a real uh, oversight of the media or, or a lack of interest uh, to to really do some investigating into Julian's case. But I think uh, we we should probably wrap it up. I think we've been going okay. a while, and we've got a, we've got another another appointment coming up. So. Absolutely. Where can um, people see the film? If they can't attend the screening, is there a way for them to see it online or something? Uh, there will be soon. So if you follow us on Twitter at Ithaca Movie or it's I-T-H-A-K-A Movie, uh, you can get the updates of uh, when it will be available online or on, on a broadcaster. And then, yeah, check the website Ithaca.movie uh, for screenings uh, around the country. Okay, absolutely. And um, after when they they can host their own screenings as well, correct? Yeah, that's right. We're we're encouraging people to host screenings, and there's a little form on the website you can do that. Uh, you can do that for. And we're also encouraging everyone at the moment to contact their co- Congress people and encourage their Congress people, their representatives, uh, to jump on this letter uh, that is going around Congress at the moment. This dear colleague's letter. Uh, you know, and we can see that it's actually working. You know, the Congress people in in, in the US are uh, are finally doing something. And you know, although these these are very principled people, they uh, they need some encouragement uh, to to act. So uh, we wouldn't be seeing them do that unless they were uh, getting contacted by their constituents. So it's very important for people to call their Congress people, uh, let them know that they're concerned at what's at stake in this case and that they want their congress person to join this uh, this letter absolutely so I, technically i guess every journalist would be julian assange you know um well gentlemen i thank you for your time thanks for coming on today and i wish you thank best you. of luck thank and you. i'm definitely going to check the film out yeah. all right thanks thanks, thanks. thanks. god bless thank take you. care Peace. see you